I like to see things work better. You know, my career is about thinking about how we can make society work better, be more equitable and fairer. I have a passion for it. And I don't know how to give up. I just don't know how to. So I keep going. And I'm also, you know, surrounded by a group of gender advocates who are full of the same level of energy. So I think, you know, we understand we're on the cusp of something. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, and that leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male middle-class people leading our organizations. I absolutely believe we need to change this and I do think we can and one of the ways of doing so is in my hope is that many of you listening right now to this podcast will eventually progress to the most senior leadership positions possible where you make decisions that make our world a better place. But to make this practically possible I also run a social enterprise to provide the practical support in order to get there. So beyond the podcast I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus which is all about the practicalities of supporting parents to get to those more senior roles through equal career progression but also do it in a way that works for them rather than emulating types of working that we've done 50 years ago. So a few updates. We now have a free resource section on the website where you can download helpful toolkits such as on returning from maternity leave, securing a promotion as a working parent, applying for a flexible working request or managing dual career couples. All that is on leadersplus.org. I'm also delighted that you can now apply to the Cross-Sector Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme for the cohort starting in November. Applications close on the 29th of October 2023 and we have 60 spaces available. Last year, a really large proportion of those spaces were taken up by podcast listeners and I would be delighted to see many of you apply. It is a nine-month career development program for working parents where you connect with like-minded working parents who love their careers and their kids and don't want to sacrifice one for the other. You will get a personal senior leader mentor and structured thinking time to work out what you want for your family and career and also get that practical support to get there. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. In this episode, I'm chatting to Michelle Harrison about the groundbreaking Reykjavik Index. We talk about why still too many people don't believe that a woman is as good a leader as a man and what we need to do to change this. I hope you find her reflections as thought-provoking as I did and I hope it inspires you to take even more action than you do already. A very warm welcome, Michelle, to the podcast. Let's start with you introducing who you are, who's in your family and what you do for work. Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me on. So I'm Michelle Harrison. I'm the global CEO of an international consulting business called Kentar Public. What our organization does is provide governments and other organizations with advice on how to implement public policy. So at home, I am married to a man called Nick, and we have three children, and my children are now young adults. So I have a son who is 24, 
and I have a daughter who is 20 and then another son who is 18. Wonderful. And when you think back about the early stages of you having children and having quite a big career, can you remember what you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe in anymore? So I think when my children were young, I'm not sure I thought of myself as having a big career. I thought of myself Mm -hmm. as doing work I cared a lot about and in an area to do with, you know, the way public policy is made and the way how, you know, the way to think about how society can work better. So I cared passionately about the area of work. I also felt very strongly about the need to make sure I had a source of income alongside my husband's and would like to talk a bit more about that when we get further into it. But it didn't occur to me, I think, when my children were young, that my career was big. I would say that my work has been sort of a series of different episodes of opportunity to move to the next stage or or get promoted. So I think when my kids were young and I was in my 30s, I think my work felt very challenging, but I don't think I would have thought of myself as having a big career in inverted commas. Interesting. And at the time when your kids were young, were you already quite senior or were you still fairly junior? So I had my children over a six-year period. So first when I was 31, I'd had them when I was 37. Things changed quite a lot during that period. I think it is It's a typical phase for people to experience quite a lot of career growth. I would say, though, actually, I stepped into my first senior managerial role in my early 40s. So I think that was probably the point at which I still had, you know, my children were still fairly young. My youngest at that point was was four. And I do remember that being an extremely challenging time. Mm, Interesting. And did you, so at the time you said you were, moving towards but you weren't that senior how did you kept the hope going because there's so many messages in well your report obviously is, is summarizing I guess some of the things that you come up against but how did you kept the hope going that yes actually it was worth continuing to go to a more senior level so it's such a complex thing isn't it so first of all I was never going to be in a position to not work so I very much needed to keep the opportunity to earn money going. And again, I I think this is a very important thing about when parents have young children, there was a phase where I definitely was spending everything I earned on covering childcare. And there was a period of time when I was working for the future opportunities that I was trying to make sure stayed open for me. Yeah. So I don't think the messages from society ever were an influence on me. So I was very focused on what I thought uh, the needs of my family were. And the needs of my family were to have two incomes, to stay very clear on that. If you look at what the risks you take as a family, if if you've only got one source of income, unless you're unusual and and have a private wealth, I mean, for any... Mm. And let's, let's even just look at it in the traditional way of a woman with a man, if over the 20 years that it takes to raise kids, the chances of that man not getting ill, not losing his job, Mm. or not leaving you are less than 50%. So the idea that I would have ever taken a risk 
or mm. something like that. Even at that point, I would have not considered it. So for me, it wasn't so much about keeping the hope alive. It was about insisting that I maintain the opportunity to earn a living and seeing the much longer term picture. That, that doesn't mean that that wasn't a time that didn't have its challenges. The other thing, I did go to part-time work for a period of about nine years. So, and again, I, I don't look on that as something that is the right thing for parents to do. It's just at that point, it worked for us. Um, and so I think I, I was very aware of the fact I was working to continue to build my skills and keep the opportunity to earn more significant money open to me in the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really interesting to hear your own story. The reason why I came across you was because I attended an event, which was brilliant, hosted by CBRE, and you were presenting the results of a survey looking into the attitudes towards yeah. women leaders. And I see a lot of stats because of what I do. And I was extremely shocked, extremely yeah. angry, and even more motivated. Can you share, maybe as a summary, what, we'll put the survey in the show notes, but just what the purpose of the survey was, what you were trying to achieve? So absolutely. So first of all, to say, you know, Rita, before we did, what you're talking about is the Reykjavik Index, and I'll, I'll come to that. But during my 30s, when I was busy with young children as well as work, I was so aware of gender-based prejudice in the workplace, but I honestly didn't truly understand how bad it was. And so, you know, when you asked me about keeping the hope alive, I was aware, but I didn't actually think it was so bad that I should not be trying to beat it. It's, it's only as I've got more senior, I've truly understood what women were and still are up against in, in that way. So talking about the Reykjavik Index for Leadership. So what that is, it's a measure of how societies around the world view men and women in terms of their suitability for leadership. And it's different to other indices in that it doesn't measure outcomes. So there are lots of wonderful sources of research that look at the outcomes for men and women in the workplace or the outcomes for, for men and women in terms of economics. What our study does is look at how society perceives them. And it asks a series of questions to understand how men and women are viewed in terms of their suitability for leadership across multiple different sectors. There's more than 20 sectors. And we've done this now across the G20 countries. So every year we look at the G7 and then we also add additional countries in. So we've learned a huge amount from this work in terms of basically the level of prejudice that society holds against female leaders. Mm. And so it sounds like you knew there was a bit of an issue, but you didn't know how bad it was. What made you create the survey? What happened to make it come about? So back in 2017, I was at an event in Brussels, a roundtable event for women leaders in the political and policy community. And I met two women, one um, called Sylvana Kokmeren. She is the founder and chair of an advocacy group called Women Political Leaders. And the other woman was a woman called Hannah Werner Hildesdorte, who is a former Icelandic politician and a special advisor to UN Women. And it was also part of this group of advocates. So we were having 
a roundtable lunch, a very private discussion between women and one of the women in the group. We were talking about the level of prejudice that people felt that they experienced in the day-to-day work. And one of the women in the group was extremely senior. She was running one of the big global governance institutions. She just suddenly said, you know, it doesn't matter how senior I get, I still have to work harder than the guys. And we had this discussion about the fact that we all implicitly believed it, but we had no way of knowing whether our experience was true. And because of the business that I'm in, we create evidence for public policy. And so I knew that we would be able to explore how we could create such a measure that that would be based in real data. So I took that away and worked with some methodologists from Kantar Public, and we were able to create the index. And then we started the research program. But even I had no idea how bad the picture would be. Hmm. So which bit shocked you most? Can you give us any numbers that particularly stuck in your mind and that really woke you up? Yeah. So if we just talk about the G7, so the Reykjavik Index provides a measure of 0 to 100. And that's a measure of the prejudice um, that is experienced based on gender. And so if you've got a score of 100, all that means is a society views men and women as equal. So 100 just is the absence of prejudice. And the average score for the G7 came out in the first year and hasn't really moved as being in the 70s. And so what that would mean is if men and women are kind of broadly in a race, you know, racing 100 kilometers, they're going equally until they hit, you know, sort of midway along somewhere between the 70 and 80th kilometer. And then the women just hit a wall and can't move any further. And so this was the actual empirical evidence that this is how society views it. And I think The thing that felt so revealing is so many of us spend time in groups of people who share our own views, right? So I, and I spend my time in work surrounded by pretty liberal-minded people too. And so, as I say, I was aware in my 30s that I was experiencing prejudice, but I I understated it certainly in my own mind. And I think I think that's generally the way you you have to get through the day-to-day. But the level of it and how it was revealed. And this is about, this is capturing the types of things that are said to women on the day-to-day, mm. in their communities, at their kitchen table, from their parents, from their partners. And so from that point of view, we were not nearly as liberal as a group of advanced economic powers as I had thought. So if it's a 70, it means just to put a picture in in our minds, does it mean if someone sees a man as suitable for leadership, then only out of 100 people, only 70 will, of those same people will see a woman as suitable? Or how can we picture that? It's an index. So it's not an absolute measure. Our methodologists create a, a score that comes out of asking thousands of people, many different questions, okay? Mm-hmm. But all that a hundred is, is the absence of prejudice. So I suppose one way of looking at it is if in the UK, which sits at the absolute top of the G7, 
within the Reykjavik mm-hmm. index. They have a score of 83. So that would be the most progressive. And yet mm. what you've got is a significant pushback against the idea, just the very basic idea that men and women are equal. What that means mm-hmm. is a good proportion of society do not agree that women mm. are equally suitable for the same range of jobs that men are. And when you actually ask very specific percentages, then we get some extraordinary answers. So we have, and we do do this, we ask people across the G7 whether or not they believe that they are entirely comfortable with female CEOs or whether they are entirely comfortable with female politicians. And there we're looking for the Mm. absence of prejudice. And the numbers are incredibly low. You've got around half of society saying that they actually are comfortable. The levels are higher than I think most people tend to think before they see the research. Mm. Obviously, when I saw it, I think, and I don't want this to be a very depressing podcast, but I was depressed after seeing it. And especially the fact that a lot of the stats have gone worse over time. So what's going on there? So it's not, so the overall index isn't going backwards as such, but it's not moving forwards. So Mm. we've been now doing this for the last five years. We're just about to produce this year's index, which will be our sixth year of data. And what we've seen is no real improvement overall. Mm. But what we have identified is that younger people carry higher levels overall of prejudice against female leaders than their parents. Now, that is the issue that tends to really surprise people because generally people, particularly those who work in the fields of public policy, tend to believe the world gets better. And Mm. I think, uh, you know, our research is showing us that in this area, we are not seeing any kind of progress between generations. Mm. And do you have a theory about why it is that people still today don't think a woman has the same leadership potential as a man? So I think in terms of what's actually happening in society right now and why we may be seeing some regression in this issue amongst younger people, I think when you see these very big shifts, it's extremely nuanced. I think it is connected to economic inequality. I think it's connected to the, I think you can take it straight back to 2008 and the international banking crisis. I think it's connected to the rise of populism and populist politics that seek to divide rather than mm. bring together. And actually, I also think it's it's connected to social media speeding up some of these things. But I think overall, right now, one way of thinking about it is society is operating as something a bit like a pepper mill where one bit's going in one direction, one bit's going in the other. So you've got the, the death of the middle, you've got increasing polarization of cultural norms, and these tend to cancel each other out. So we have a generation of young people who are more who are almost post-gender and extremely progressive compared to any generation that's come before. That's one group, but a slightly Mm. bigger group is moving to, I will use the word regressive because I am clear on what my own values are, but are regressing to a a set of values from a previous generation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm, Interesting. I'm no historian at all, but I remember in secondary school, I learned that 
and this was a Swiss secondary school, so it might be slightly different history, but I learned that women's roles became a lot more traditional again after the Second World War. And obviously in Switzerland, women didn't engage in the war effort. So the reason wasn't that. But our teacher said to us that everyone was so worried about after the Second World War that they just wanted to go back to the safety of old gender norms. That, that was her interpretation anyways. And I wonder whether there's an element of that in that there have been a number of crises, COVID, one of them, and just the whole let's go to what we know and be like our grandparents have that sort of setup. I think economic inequality mm. creates the conditions of polarisation from a cultural mm. point of view. Mm. Obviously, in the index, you don't cover parents specifically. That's something I'm particularly interested in. My gut feeling, and, and this is very much gut feeling and just from talking to people on our programme, is that when you become a mother, sometimes you get more of these assumptions made about you, especially that caring, nurturing. And then that also has another side in that people who are not mothers, then people, assumptions are made about them. But is that something that you've been thinking about? So I don't think there was any doubt that women and leadership have a certain set of cultural biases around them. And then you add in mothering and you'll put in a whole additional layer but I'm also very aware now that when, we, when we're talking about women here, you know, one in five women in Britain don't have children. Now, mm. one in three women in Germany don't have children now. So when we first did the study, we didn't make it about mothers. We, we just made it about the gender divide. But I think you raise, obviously, an extremely important point. And the prejudice towards women and their entitlement to lead will be wrapped up in social norms around parenting, mothering as well. Mm. And do you think that's something you might include in the future in the survey? Yeah, as soon as... Um, in the index. Yeah, survey. yeah. As soon as I noted your question, I thought, yes, of course. That's, and, mm -hmm. I don't, and I don't know why we haven't done it sooner. So there you go. So thank you very much for that. We will do. <laughs> you can't do everything at once. If we look at this challenge around leadership, one thing that I found quite nice actually to read, I remember, and I have to say, this is my first day back from holiday, so my memory is slightly hazy, but I think you were talking about Iceland and Iceland is the most equal one in terms yeah. of expectations of women. So that was really lovely to hear. But also, Icelandic women were one of the most dissatisfied, if I remember that right. This is what it shows you. So you're absolutely right on both those things. So Iceland is the country that has got the closest of any country we've studied to actually having a perception that men and women are equal. Their Reykjavik index is up in the 90s. So it's a source of, of huge inspiration, obviously. And you're right, the data, because we also ask people to say whether or not they believe the work of uh, equality has been achieved. And in every single country where we ask that question, the men say, uh, men are far more likely to say it's been achieved than the women. But in Iceland, that's a very strong difference. And I think what it tells us is the way Icelandic women feel that there is still so much more to achieve in terms of equality. It tells us something about what it takes from mm. a society and from the energy required to drive this change through after a millennium of social prejudice, what it really takes to turn this around. And, you know, thank goodness for Iceland showing us what can be achieved. And do you have a theory about why? Is it just because Icelandic women are really dissatisfied and therefore they wouldn't stop? Or do you have a theory about why there is that greater perception of female 
positive perception of female leaders? So a number of things happened in Iceland in the second half of the 20th century, which demonstrate the sort of interconnection of it isn't just legislation, it is then implementing it. So equal representation, actions around the representation of men and women alongside each other in decision making, a state supported intervention around childcare, which Mm -hmm. is so critical. And then this endless resilience to keep going until the job uh, is done. And so, so I think that, that interconnection, I, I think potentially it helps that it's a smaller state, which means that kind of community intimacy is there. But I, I think we should just be inspired because, you know, the largest nations in the world can do this at the state level or the city level. But I think it is the interconnection of representation and decision-making alongside intervention around public policy and childcare that made this happen. One alone would mm. not have been enough. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I was interested in Germany, which given that they had Angela Merkel for quite a while, you would think that the numbers would look much better and that a lot of people would assume that it's okay to have a female leader. But that wasn't so much the case. What, what's been going on there? Do you have any thoughts? I tend to obviously prefer to allow German men and women to talk about uh, their own interpretation of the results. But, but basically what the Reykjavik Index has shown is that Germany amongst the G7 group of nations has one of the highest levels of prejudice against women in leadership. And that was shocking when I first saw it because of this myth we hold in our own minds that economic power becomes associated with gender equality. And of course it doesn't. And I think the idea that one female politician will change an entire large society's norms is yeah, it's peculiar that we think that, don't we? And it's it's helped me really understand. So it's, this, it's the same thing as one female CEO can't mm. fix gender bias within a business. These things are so much bigger than that. So German female leaders tell me that Germany has a cultural issue around mothers returning to work and that that is still not something that society has worked through schools close early there are lots of issues that don't align the nature of the economy with the nature of the domestic economy and that Mm. that perhaps has led to some of this as I say I think I'm really happy to talk about the data overall I'm absolutely happy to do a deep dive on the UK but I do think it's it's hard to interpret unless you are of that culture very fair point I don't usually interrupt a podcast for ads, but as you know, I really passionately believe we need more people who don't look like your stereotypical white male stale middle class leader works nine to five in decision making roles. And so I just want to take a minute to very warmly invite you to apply to our cross sector fellowship program. That is, if you're listening right now, you're caring for your kids, you do find the juggle tough at times, but also you do have big dreams for your career. And if that's you, then I would love it if you would put an application in. Any questions, just get in touch. I've asked the past fellow, Jennifer Crowley, to share with you what she got from the experience. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. This is Jennifer's experience. Hi, I'm Jennifer Crowley. 
Global Director of Responsible Business with Kin and Carta. We are a digital transformation consultancy with colleagues around the world and really, really proud to be the first listed B Corp on the London Stock Exchange. I completed the Leaders Plus um, program in 2021 as I was returning from mat leave with my second child. It was game changing for me. I feel so lucky to have met it, to have met the program, to have met Verena, to have met the structure, the preparation and the diligence that goes into every minute of every call. It is such good value. Why has it been game changing for me? I met it at the right time. I was really clear that I did not want to repeat that dip that I experienced from my first maternity leave. My ambition was higher than ever. And so I needed to be quite intentional about seeking out the support that my mind, my intellect, and my emotions needed to get back in the game as I was returning from mat leave. The people that I met on the course have become allies and uh, co-conspirators for life, I hope. We've met in real life a few times, but the hybrid nature of the Leaders Plus program has really worked for schedules and for deadlines and for all of the competing demands of life. My advice to anyone considering whether they deserve such a support program is don't hesitate. Do prioritize, do fight for the time to get clear on why and how you will work it. It's a muscle. And so the structure, the insight, the research that the course brings you does deserve that time to to reflect upon and to incorporate into how you go about your work, into the annual targets that you will set as part of your role. I offer my absolute support and encouragement to anybody that's considering the program. Very specifically, it equips you with knowledge, it reduces your doubt, and it galvanizes your ambition into a very constructive plan. I don't think it's any coincidence that I'm now in my dream role, working with Kin and Carter's executive board to really solidify our ESG ambitions, to recertify for B Corp, and to go on and do great things for our clients in the context of the climate and diversity and inclusion. I guess I'm particularly interesting because I'm from Switzerland and yeah. so it's partly because of the language there are a lot of cultural similarities yes. and I Switzerland is bad and exactly that you know children come home from school at 11 30 and most of the children will go home to their mums and it's most of the time the mums to have a home-cooked lunch and they go back to school at two o'clock in the afternoon so it's even the, it's the practical things. There's a cultural norm there right that sets mm. in and it is extremely difficult to be dealing with that kind of cultural norm that is suggesting that you're a bad mother. Right? That's a, that's a mm -hmm. terribly difficult thing to manage. And I think if we get this to the UK, and if I think about that period in my life when my children were young, and I still feel it now. I mean, if there's, if there's something that upsets me so much, it is still the way there is a characterization in the media of women who, in inverted commas, gave up work for their children. And I just, mm -hmm. I think it is the cruelest commentary. So if you are a parent or a mother doing three part-time jobs in order that you can do the supermarket shop in order to make sure your kids are eating, then you going to work is an act of complete maternal love. And I just hate the fact that we still configure 
some idea of giving up work being a sacrifice that you make for your kids when the vast majority of women who are working, it's not a hobby, you know? Mm. And so they will be making decisions based on the economic reality of their home or they're making a decision based on their unwillingness to take a risk. And if they're not working, they're not able to provide security for their children. And I, I do truly dislike the way that is still a commentary in Britain still, that there is some element of sacrifice and the women who don't make that sacrifice are therefore lesser mothers. It is utter nonsense. And unless we see working as generally an essential act of parenting, we're not going to get away from this. I couldn't agree more. Very well said. You've talked a lot about the economic dynamics that lead to these stereotypes, which is actually not a link I've made before. And it it makes sense now you talk about childcare, but what else do you see from an economic perspective as contributing to these massive stereotypes against women leaders? Right. So I think the, the issues around economics for me are linking right now to this to the cultural challenges we have with populism and uh, sort of the culture wars. I think they're powerful drivers of this regression amongst younger people and attitudes to equality. I think we have a, a mythical conversation in society about women and their role as economic actors that is based on some kind of post-war nonsense, as if men go to work and get to stay in work and as if the economy will provide them with secure lifelong work. That is a nonsense. And so the fact that we're still holding on to this false norm that you can have one parent working in a secure way and that allowing another parent to stay focused at home, it is utter nonsense. So we just need to have more honesty about that. And for people who are, if they are choosing to stop work, I understand the economic constraints that can mean they can't cover the cost of childcare, which is why I do think childcare is this mm. absolutely mm. essential part of it. But otherwise, if someone is making a decision to do that, they're making the decision, which is so full of risk. I think we, we also need to talk a bit more about that. But otherwise, mm. we just still, we have some hugely embedded cultural issues around women and behaviours and how society dislikes and punishes women for having a certain Mm. set of behaviours and that influences their ability to lead. I see this, I see this as I've become more senior, I've understood it more. Marianne Seagal, I don't know whether you've had her on your podcast. I have actually. Well, there you go. She's great. Right. She wrote, when she wrote The Authority Gap, she really captured very well something that's just genuinely true. Society still does not afford women the level of authority that it affords men. And so, of course, that's there in every boardroom that you're trying to lead Mm. as a woman. The other way of summing this up, and and again, you know, I just credit to all of the wonderful female leaders out there who've been making a contribution. Julia Gillard has summed it up so succinctly. So for women to be leaders, they need to be likable. But the attributes that make you leaderly are not liked in women, right? And so you are in a vicious Mm. cycle. And for all of the training on how to negotiate a pay rise, how to exert more confidence in the workplace, actually an emotionally 
intelligent woman will know that every time she tries to negotiate a pay rise, she will be pushing against a cultural norm that means she's disliked for it. Every time she demonstrates just the natural assertion that leaders tend to have, she will be presenting herself with a set of characteristics that just society doesn't admire or like in women. And so an emotionally astute woman will spend every day navigating those things so as to get things done without uh, Mm. creating a pushback against her for those behaviors. Mm. You strike me as someone who hasn't given up yet, even though the picture is bleak. Why do you keep going? And also, what's your, I guess, what's your personal vision for change? And we can edit this out if it's too deep, but I'm interested in what, how do you see you, Michelle, making contribution to that change? First of all, I think I've been, I've had a wonderful career and I have a job I love leading a a business I'm, I'm very proud of. So I don't spend too much time feeling Sorry for me, I spend time thinking about the the way in which we can get this change done once and for all. And so I think if, if I was to look back on my 30s, I thought that we were a part of a generation that would get things fixed once and for all. And I find myself in my mid-50s knowing that that hasn't happened. But I feel like this is a moment where we need to go faster and harder to get this done. And I like to see things work better. You know, my career is about thinking about how we can make society work better, be more equitable and fairer. I have a passion for it. And I don't know how to give up. I just don't know how to. So I keep going. And I'm also, you know, surrounded by a group of gender advocates who are full of the same level of energy. So I think, you know, we understand we're on the cusp of something. And we need to keep going. Mm. Fantastic. This is not going to be a simple answer, I'm sure. But what is your freshest thinking about what is going to drive that change? So we talk about childcare, but it seems deeper than that. Childcare, but I think the really essential element. So if I look, think of it from a business point of view, the essential element is we, and this is something you're very obviously involved in, is that the language of parenting in the workplace replaces the language of mothering. We do need to take Mm -hmm. the gender out of parenting in order to allow people to flourish at work and also flourish at home. So I think think removing the gender association with parenting is, is absolutely critical. And they've done that in Iceland. They've made very good progress in the Nordics. I think that needs to become normal. I mean, there's still obviously an absurd gender pay gap. You have to be in a position of authority to ensure that that isn't happening in your own organization. And obviously, I'm very sensitive to how significant that is in society as a whole. Again, I think that's an area where we're making progress because there have been actions put in place to call that out and and make it public. And and those things are, are very good. I think you have to do all of these things at the same time and just not stop. You know, I don't, it's not easy, but Mm. the the alternative is worse. Mm, I agree. And I am actually quite enthused with how many men, they're not that many, but there are, there are there who are challenging assumptions and who want to have a leadership career with young children. When I set up Leaders Plus, which is all about supporting leaders to progress their careers, 
with young children, I was pushed by quite a few people to just make it about women, but I didn't. And now about 10% of the people in our programs who are men who work part-time or who are heavily involved in their children's lives. And they are a really important part of the change, I think. Uh, Completely. And let's get it to 50%. And then this issue goes away, Mm -hmm. you know. So of course, Mm -hmm. I, I would say, and again, I'm I think I'm really talking about Britain, but we would see the same across the G7. We need to be honest about the nature of the cultural divide. And that cultural divide is not just in society, it's in the boardroom. You know, so senior female women in business or politics, they're they're always very aware when they are working in the company of a man who is in a partnership with a woman who also has a career and the difference Mm -hmm. in experience that they will get from when uh, they're working alongside someone who will have, for the sake of wording, a more traditional setup. And those differences, they come right into the boardroom. And I think probably what is missed is how much women in the workplace are aware of these things and talk about these things. And I think what we also just need to make sure we're doing is recognizing it and recognizing the cultural tensions it creates Mm -hmm. it's very true i think there's something also and maybe this happened in iceland because it's such a small country about the women who are lucky enough to be in power or who are going against the tide because they're trying to progress their careers even though they have three young screaming kids at home and are told by everyone to go and take a career break it's those people coming together and being a force for change and also supporting each other to become the role models of the future who then hopefully change what's normal. I think there's something about changing what is normal. And I guess that's why I was so surprised with the Merkel example, because I thought that would change what is normal. So do you think role models are going to help change what's normal or am I in an illusion there? I mean, Merkel's a wonderful example of a powerful female leader. She didn't have children and the question mm-hmm. where Germany needs to be is to have an equally powerful leader where no one's concerned whether or not they have children. Of course, role models are fantastically important, but they are just role models. They don't shift the economics or the political intervention that, that is required. So yeah, I think, I think role models are important, but that's not enough. Mm, I agree. And so the fact that you and I are passionate about this, it's kind of obvious because we're both, yeah, we, we are passionate about it. But there is a seek, I think we need to get to people who are, like you say, maybe on those boards, who are in decision making roles, who are maybe the stereotypical elderly, grey haired, white male from a middle class background. We need those people to become really passionate about this. How do you have any thoughts about how to achieve that? So, Right, when it comes to what is going on in boards, you have to legislate to get equal representation to actually get that change ahead of the curve. Culturally, in terms of the changes that we need to make in society, I don't actually think we can hold chairs or CEOs of businesses responsible for the changes that need to happen in society. That is something that has to happen at the household level. It has to happen in our schools. It has to happen in our politics. I think think business has a powerful role to play. It is an environment in which all of the prejudices and 
intersectional inequalities of society come through the door. But what you can do in a business is work really hard within that environment to minimize them. But you can't fix society as a whole through the lens of business. Mm. And, you know, when we're talking about what businesses can do, businesses can do a lot. But the first thing has to happen is at home that women aren't fed the the messages of prejudice that the Reykjavik Index captures that when they come to work as parents, they come as a, as a parent, not just as the mother, that we reduce the prejudice that that woman experiences, not just in the workplace, but every day mm. in, in wider society. So I'm passionate about the role of business, and I'm very clear it's just one part of, one part mm. of the equation. And we can hold accountable person you described, you know, the, the more classical model of a business leader, but we are just as equally needing to hold ourselves accountable for the way we talk to our children, the way we relate to our partners in terms of the the biases and prejudice we all bring bring to that. Absolutely. And that's why your Reykjavik Index is so important because if I was shocked by it and surprised by it, who thinks about gender equality every day, then that is so important and we need to keep going and, and please keep going with the Reykjavik Index and definitely add in a question around working parents. But that is so, I'm really pleased that you're doing it, is what I'm saying. Well, thank you. And what we just, you know, the purpose of it is is to ensure that the quality of public debate is improved and is based on, on fact and a measure of the things that people might intrinsically know but can't actually prove rather than just more nonsense culture wars Mm. Mm, absolutely and I think one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that you are in the position to make that decision I don't know if there was a stereotypical white male CEO who works full-time but that type of index would have been created so what do you think I guess if a young friend came to you and asked for what you did that worked for your career progression for being promoted internally and externally what do you think worked? I know that's a big question, sorry. No, I think uh, it, resilience and me also being in an environment where I had a lot of passion for my work. So it mm. always felt like something I, I really wanted to do. I, I think I was, I was very, very fortunate in that regard. But what I would say is with hindsight, what I wish someone had said to me is it's okay if you don't go health below the full tilt the whole time. And I think this isn't just about women or mothers. This is about parents. This is about carers. This is about anyone in the workplace who may have something going on in their personal life that requires time and attention. And I can now see that really during my 30s, you know, and we were busy with three kids and two jobs and a whole host of other things. I was continuing to progress, but at times really not that fast. And that is fine. I really feel that very strongly that if there's something that I can communicate as a CEO in our organization, it's that my job is to build a sustainable business that's here in the longer term. And that applies just as much to our people, to our staff, as it does to the way we look after our clients. So, you know, honestly, if someone needs to work less hours or just slow down for a little bit or just 
need to concentrate on something else for a while. You know, seriously, it is ultimately not the end of anything. It is absolutely fine to pace yourself. And yeah, I think my career and growth has been based on having the resilience of a marathon. I didn't do that much <laughs> sprinting. Yeah. That is so encouraging to hear. And if we are picturing 2033 and a lot more of your CEO colleagues are women, what do you think would have happened to achieve this? Ah, so I think we would have been successful with changing the language around parenting. So we did routinely talk about parents and not mothers, right? Until we, because the idea that we say mother when we mean parent, there couldn't be anything with a higher level of gender bias in it than that. So that's yeah. the first thing. Now, that is not to say that mothers can't choose if they wish to play the role of taking more time off work. I mean, people need to do whatever they want, but it isn't for us to presume that we use the mm. word mother instead of parent because otherwise we bring our own, our own bias. I think really encouraging employees to understand that there might be times when they are articulating a desire for promotion at work and there may be times when they are articulating that actually they, they want to do a good job but then they're going to need to get home. We will have, if we're going to be very successful in achieving our goals to greater gender equality over the next 10 years, then our behaviours will be based on what drives change in the medium term. And we'll keep going mm. and we'll have the resilience. Absolutely. And you may not have advice, but I couldn't resist asking you. We are a social enterprise that is all about, through our programmes, to support people to progress their careers. And we are doing, you know, we, we get good results from it, but we want to make a bigger impact. We want to support more people. What, if any, advice do you have for us based on all your expertise and knowledge about how we can make a bigger difference? For you as an organisation. As yeah. a social enterprise. Yeah. And if you have no thoughts, that's no, fine no. as well. But... Um, it is. So advocacy is about the daisy chain, isn't it? It is about the way... Mm. As an advocate, you're linking to other powerful advocates. In the end, it's about the power of that voice. It's been one of the, the most wonderful things that I'm part of the Reykjavik Forum that meets every year in Iceland to review and re-energize ourselves as, as advocates around gender equality. And it is that bringing together of people who all share the same purpose. So the networking, the engagement, the allyship amongst other enterprises but I believe you're doing all of that right you've got a you put a huge amount of effort into creating a powerful conversation mm, thank you and we leave so we're coming towards the end of our podcast time and we finish every conversation with a practical nugget someone could do it in five minutes to start driving the change so do we have quite a few senior leaders listening to this podcast so do you have any thoughts about small five-minute steps they might consider taking this week to yeah. start changing the dial? So on a Friday before you close down for the weekend or, you know, if you are going straight out for a drink and socialising maybe on a Saturday morning, look at the week ahead, look at your schedule and just consider how there might be a bit of time that you could use differently to get what you need from it. I do that and I've always done that every Friday. 
That's so excellent advice. Sorry, sorry to be so boring. No, no, that's very, very. Actually, that's incredibly practical. And for yeah. me, this is we're volunteer. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday, which is technically my Friday because yeah. I work four days a week. Yeah. So I shall be doing this yeah. right after this call. But, but, but the thing in shortest supply is time. So I, mm-hmm. I have had a career long habit of observing how I spend it. Mm, excellent. Yeah. That's really powerful. Simple but powerful. And if people want to find out about the Right Quick Index, if they want to find out about more about your work, where should they go? So visit Kantar Public on LinkedIn on the website. We are about to rebrand, but anyone who visits us now will be notified of our rebrand next month. Mm. The Reykjavik Index is available online. Just Google it. You're great. You'll get straight to it. And watch out for the new annual delivery of data, which will be released at the Reykjavik Global Forum on the 13th of November. Fantastic. I've made a note of that. Thank you very much, Michelle. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening and spending this time with me today. If it has been helpful to you, but you would like more support from others to help you develop your career and enjoy your family in a realistic way, then I would love for you to consider joining our fellowship program, which is a high impact program helping you progress your career with little ones in tow. All the details are on leadersplus.org forward slash apply. On the fellowship, you will get access to an amazing group of peers who all have experienced bringing up kids whilst progressing their career You'll get access to brilliant role models who've been there, done that, support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no, and you'll be given time to develop your vision and make a plan for what you want to achieve in your career, but also in your family life. And you'll do that in small group sessions. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or have got senior responsibility, more senior responsibility by the end of the program, for example, a board role, and they have all got involved in some shape or form in driving vital change for working parents. In terms of the impact on work-life balance, there has been an increase of, let me think, was it 61 or 59? 61 or 59%, I need to look up the data, in terms of the self-perceived ability to manage work-life balance, a real massive impact. So if you want to join, then do put in an application. We've got until the 29th of October, 2023. And all the info is on leadersplus.org forward slash apply.